Coming up on this episode of The Life of a Reluctant Brown Girl. Just writing out how I felt made me realize how embedded my internalized racism was within me and how it really has affected so many aspects of my life. And even, you know, four years after writing that blog post, you know, I'm still unlearning things. Life of a reluctant brown girl. She's a reluctant brown girl. A reluctant brown girl. Hello, fam, and welcome to the Life of a Reluctant Brown Girl, where we chat about experiences with culture, entrepreneurship, life empowerment, and all the ups and downs of everything in between. Unfiltered girl talk included. I'm Manisha, the reluctant brown girl. This episode, we are going to explore how it feels growing up in a world trying to figure out where you belong and how you can start to come into your own. And for this episode, I am joined by another inspirational RBG, Rogni. Now, let me tell you about Rogni. This girl understands the word hustle. She's a leader in her community and is a brand marketing genius. No, seriously. Don't believe me? You know that footwear and apparel company, Tiki's? Well, she built Tiki's influencer marketing program from scratch. And currently, she's the head of community at Uncle Studios, an eco-conscious clothing brand, which was co-founded by content creator Allegra Shaw. Not to mention, she has a number of other accomplishments, but the list was so long, we'd be here all day if I kept listing them out. So welcome to the podcast, Ragni. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So nice to have you on. Yeah, that was such a nice compliment-filled introduction. I loved it. Oh, good. I just came up with that myself. (laughs) No, but you are. You're super inspirational. So just for some context, we have a mutual friend who connected us. And so when I first started talking about Life of a Reluctant Brown Girl, starting this podcast, I kept telling a bunch of people because I wanted input and I wanted to see what people were thinking. And also I was super excited. And one of our mutual friends was like, I know someone who would be perfect for your podcast. And I was like, who? And he's like, Rogany. And I was like, oh, sweet. He's like, I'm going to connect you guys. And then he did. And now here we are. Yeah, I know. I mean, so I don't know how much uh, you know about me and Gurjot, but we were on the Commerce Society together at Dal. And and that's how we became friends. Um, and we had stayed in touch, you know, throughout our years at Dal. And then we hadn't really stayed in touch post-grad. And then one day I just got a message, I think like a couple months ago. He was just like, hey, my friend's starting a podcast. I'm referring you. Um, I think you'd be great. And that was essentially it. And I, I thought that was like the biggest compliment. I was like, wow, thank you so much. Like I've never <laughs> been asked to be on a podcast before, but um, I'm super stoked. And I'm glad that we're actually able to record this. Yeah, same. And also the fact that you hadn't heard from him and the only time you hear from him was to like record a podcast. He's like, hey, don't want to talk to you. Don't care how you're doing. You should be on this podcast. Yeah, I know. I was just like, this is kind of, you know, it's great to hear from you. Um, I'm doing great. (laughs) Don't worry about me. But no, like he's, Gurjo is a great guy. And we really got to also connect being very few of the brown people in Halifax and in our commerce program. So um, it was still nice to hear from him. Have I spoken to him ever since he messaged me that? No. Great joke. Come on. I know. I I think this is also partially his fault, but but it's okay. I'll take some of the blame. Yeah, that's fine. Maybe he can he can take us for dinner or something when 100 percent when you come into town. 
yeah, when I come to the, the West Coast, I will, I'll make him take us for dinner for sure. Okay, sweet. That's happening. <laughs> All right. We have witnesses. Everybody listening to this. <laughs> and actually, this is a great starting point because you kind of touched a little bit on where you went to university, but maybe we'll back it up even more and kind of just touch on your experiences growing up and kind of how it shaped you into who you are. So maybe give the fam kind of some background on yourself and your upbringing. So we can start from the beginning. Okay, for sure. So I was born in New Delhi, India in 1996. (laughs) We're going very specific here. I love that. I love it. And I moved to Toronto when I was three. So at the time I had just one older sister. Um, She's two years older than me. So she was five. And then my mom and my dad. And we moved to Toronto when I was three. So I think 1999. Both my parents are Indian, but my mom was born in the UK and then lived in Canada for a good chunk of her childhood. And then her and the family moved back to India when she was in high school, just because there was just so much discrimination and racism here in Toronto. And my grandparents and the family just couldn't handle it. So they moved back to India, actually. No way. Yeah. So they, so she was in England, moved mm-hmm. to Canada, and then went back to India. Yeah. I don't think she was in the UK for that long. Right. And she has two older sisters and a younger brother. So they were all here in Canada, in Toronto. And then I think just like when she was probably like 14 or like early teens, they decided to move back and just take the whole family back to New Delhi. Mm -hmm. That's essentially where she did her high school and university. And then her and my dad had an arranged marriage and then they moved to Toronto in 1999. So my dad is like born and raised from India. So he was like fully an immigrant coming here. Whereas my mom had a UK citizenship, had a Canadian citizenship. So for her moving here wasn't as much of a challenge than it was for my dad. Not as much of a culture shock, probably. Not as much of a culture shock. And honestly, like me being three years old, I, it was not that much of a culture shock for me either. I I barely remember India really, but yeah, so we moved here. We lived in our grandparents' basement um, because my grandparents also ended up moving back to Toronto and we just like lived in our grandparents' basement. After that, uh, we had an apartment in North York and we had like, my sister and I had bunk beds and our parents had a bed next to us. And so we were like sharing one room. So it was very much humble beginnings when, when we first got here, but yeah, we've been here for, I would say I think 22 years now. So mm-hmm. it's it's been a great time so far. <laughs> I guess you probably don't remember much of India though. No, I definitely, three, I've right? been back to India, but in terms of like being born there or just like my first three years of life, I, I don't really remember that at all. I definitely feel more of a culture shock when I've gone back to India than I do feel here in, Coming in Toronto. Here. Yeah. Yeah. My mom actually is from England as well. Oh, okay. My dad is from India and... Same thing. My dad immigrated here, but he, I guess your dad immigrated here as an adult. So my dad immigrated here as a child. So it's also a little bit different in that sense, because if you're coming with all these established um, values and cultural practices as an adult is very different than as a child, because I think you're still a little bit more flexible as a child in learning and, you know, getting used to the standard and norm. And I'm sure your dad is like, probably fully immersed now. Yeah, 100%. My dad, um, I definitely don't come from like a traditional Indian family at all. Um, And it's very surprising, especially considering the fact that my dad 
was born and raised there. Um, but I'm just grateful. He's like a very open-minded dad. <laughs> yeah. So when you say you don't come from a traditional Indian family, mm-hmm. hint, hint, nudge, nudge, RBG. <laughs> but what do you mean by that? Yeah. That you don't come from a traditional Indian family? So I think that, you know, when we first moved here, I guess we would have been more quote unquote traditional. We would practice and celebrate Hindu celebrations. We would take part in our Indian culture. The majority of our friends were Indian, or at least my parents' friends were Indian. And we we really kept that like close-knit collectivist community. That was like a really big part for us. Mm-hmm. But I think like as we started to assimilate into North American society our roots and our traditions and all of our culture kind of took a like backseat to everything else. Um, And I think that's like, it's nobody's fault per se, but I think that my sister and I growing up as we started to experience our own like internalized racism, we started to really push away Indian culture and traditions um, like as much as possible. So we essentially cut ties with everything we knew growing up. And that came from like a lot of different places. And unfortunately, like what it actually led to was our parents also cutting ties with a lot of these Indian traditions. For example, like as kids growing up, we used to celebrate Diwali, which is a super important Indian holiday. We used to, you know, celebrate Rocky and Navratri and all these really important festivities But then as my sister and I got older, we wanted to get rid of that side of ourselves. So we like did not participate in those kind of things. And because we didn't, our parents kind of just stopped doing that too. And so in that sense, like we really, we really wanted to try to whitewash ourselves. And in turn, that ended up whitewashing our parents in a lot of ways. Yeah. Now, as I'm 24 and my sister's 26, we're trying to, you know, reverse the damage and we're trying to bring back those traditional Indian things that we used to do growing up because we realized that was a really huge part of our lives and um, we, we should have been celebrating those things. So you said that you you kind of, you and your sister kind of almost like rejected participating in these traditions and these rituals and whatnot. Did you feel any pressure from your parents? Like were they at all like trying to force you to keep that part of you alive and ingrained? I think they did. I mean, they definitely tried growing up and possibly even now. I'm a really good debater slash arguer slash negotiator. I was able to negotiate my way out of these kind of celebrations or anything to do with Indian culture. I think just like Mm -hmm. at the time, my hatred towards those things was so strong that I was really convincing when I didn't want to participate. So I think for my parents, at some point it was easier for them to kind of just like give up on it rather than, you know, try to be like, no, this is an important foundation of who you are. Yeah. So yeah, like I, I definitely don't think they liked it. And we actually had a conversation a couple days ago because it was Lord Ganesh's birthday. I had messaged my family being like, why didn't we celebrate this? We should have celebrated. And my dad was just like, I would have loved to celebrate that. I didn't even think it was an option. So I think like- No way. Yeah. So I think, or my sister and I are trying to be like, you guys are the parents. Like we should have, I mean, it's not their fault, but like we should have continued these things to continue learning about who we are and where we came from. Yeah. Like for example, I went to Balvihar, which is essentially Sunday school, but for Hindus. Yeah. And I went every Sunday. My sister went every Sunday. And then once I just like- started hating it, I just told my parents, I was like, I refuse to go. And 
you know, I feel like you can only force a kid to do so much. And yeah. so they kind of just like gave in and, and that was it essentially. And what age did you stop going? Do you remember? I want to say like 12 or 13. So just about the teenage years almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I was already being rebellious. And then in addition to that, like I just didn't want to do any of the like Indian things. And yeah, I was just like, get me away from here. I don't want to be associated to this. Um, yeah. So yeah, so they kind of just gave in. Yeah. Wanting to be cool and hip and all those things, that's when the pressure starts to kick in and you start being really aware of what you think is cool or yeah you know what the norm should be and what you should be like a hundred percent I was very much influenced by society and you know the pressure to to make yourself as white as possible and if the only thing I couldn't change was the color of my skin then like I was going to do everything else in my power to change everything else about me so that I could fit the mold that society wanted me to be yeah okay so I want to just ask a question because I think it's worth throwing out I love definitions. So you said internalized racism. And I think that this is something that doesn't come to the forefront of people's mind. I think we talk a lot about racism, but we don't talk a lot about internalized racism. So do you want to maybe define what internalized racism is? Yeah, for sure. I guess for me, internalized racism is essentially being, as simply put, it's being racist towards yourself. Um, And it's also, you know, not just yourself, but to your race. And I think the thing there is you subconsciously or, you know, you, some part of you believes that white people are the superior race and that you are lesser than because of the color of your skin. And, you know, this could be for a number of reasons, but the major reason is because you've been just trained to think that way just through cultural norms. Mm-hmm. So essentially, yeah, it's, it's really just that we were racist towards ourselves and racist towards Indian people, essentially. That was a great definition. Thank you for that. <laughs> if you have a I textbook definition, like feel free to say it. I don't. I, I, like I definitely do not. I think that was great. I like it that you didn't say it exactly by like the dictionary definition as well, because I think that's the way you said it is way more relatable. Yeah. And helps give context, which is important. Also, because I don't know the textbook definition of, uh, I mean, like I know it, in that like I've read it but I couldn't yeah. recite it to you right now no and I couldn't either so <laughs> it's fine so we're both on the same page perfect so I know I keep kind of going back to this but I'm curious do you remember when you felt like that societal or western cultural pressure of being more white kicked in and is there something that you remember that made you start thinking that way like what made you think that these indian traditions are kind of strange and this is weird and this is going to make me look weird. Right. I think it was definitely a gradual realization on my part. You know, growing up, definitely experienced forms of racism, you know, being called Paki, telling me to go back to where I came from, and also, you know, seeing my parents experience it as well. So from the get-go, I kind of always knew that we were different, but I never really understood why or why that was wrong. But I think, you know, like when I was getting older – it's really the media and, you know, fashion magazines, for example, those are the things that I was really influenced by growing up and to not see any form of representation of me or, you know, any person of color, or any kind of minority really is what really influenced me. It's, I would say the same time that I, I started not wanting to go to Balvahar was the same time that 
I wanted to get rid of my brownness. Mm -hmm. So I think those were the things that really influenced me. I think the biggest thing I remember is when I was in grade seven, someone had told me I was so whitewashed and they said it to me as a compliment. And I took it as the biggest compliment because I felt like in my young life of 12 years, that is the moment that I was working towards. I was working Mm -hmm. towards being whitewashed and I felt like I finally got that validation. And so once I got that, I was like, all right, well, I have to keep going and keep ridding myself of anything that can make me seem lesser than. So Mm -hmm. I would say like when I was 12 was really when I started getting those compliments about being whitewashed and I'm saying compliments because that's how I, I saw them then. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say like, it was definitely a multitude of things. Just one, me being ashamed Two, seeing like no representation. And so thinking that like being a white woman was like absolutely the most ideal goal possible. Right. And three, getting the validation and acceptance from my friends. Yeah. And then with that said, it sounds like you didn't have a lot of Indian friends. Yeah. As well. That is correct. I did not. So that might have played a large part in that as well. Yes. I mean, I think it's definitely an uncomfortable thing to talk about or like, or maybe a little vulnerable and, you know, it doesn't put me in the best light. But growing up, I actively avoided being friends with Indian people. Mm-hmm. And that's just to show how ashamed I was of being Indian that I didn't want to be associated with other Indian people. And so, you know, to think that I could have, I probably have lost out on a lot of friendships with people of color just because of this fear and internalized racism of mine. It's sad and disappointing for sure. But yeah, that's, that's, I definitely didn't have a lot of Indian friends growing up. Yeah. And I think it's not your fault. You're a child (laughs) and your friends had these preconceived notions of what it meant to be Indian, which didn't farewell or like I don't know how to put that in a way but they just didn't perceive it to be necessarily a good thing yeah so you took on those you took that to heart and you're like okay well I'm gonna try to like stray away from that as much as I can because this isn't perceived to be the cool or the best way of being who I can be right and to as a part of that distancing yourself from people who are Indian and honestly it's Again, it's not a bad thing. And I think like it's you're very different now and your perceptions are very different and you're more informed. So you were also weren't having dialogues with people about like how you were feeling necessarily. I'm just assuming, I guess. Yeah. But I think most people don't in a young age didn't have the opportunity to have those dialogues to understand there's actually nothing wrong with that. This is just society's perception of things and you can be who you want. Yeah. The messaging you were getting, whether maybe it was like subliminal messaging, was very different. It was saying be white means that you can be the best you almost. Yeah, 100%. And like, I think that the biggest, I mean, to be totally honest, this change of, of me becoming more proud of who I am and me not being ashamed of who I am at all has really only happened in the last four to six years. When I first went to Dal, Halifax is a predominantly white city and Dal is a predominantly white university, especially the commerce program. When I was there, like I would be lying if I said I didn't have those same thoughts and I didn't have like, oh my goodness, like I, what if I become friends with an Indian person and then people think I'm an international student as if it's like the most 
horrible disrespect to be called an international student. Like, God forbid I'm like mistaken for a student who had the courage to move across the world to get a better education and, you know, like really create a life for themselves. And I was just, once again, like so afraid about what people would think of me that I once again, Mm -hmm. you know, was very strategic with who I was becoming friends with. And um, it wasn't until my like fourth year at Dal when I really started changing and really started being like, what the hell am I doing? This is wrong. And, you know, for anyone that knows me, they know I'm very much like an advocate for social justice. So it was this really big juxtaposition within myself where like I'm being this huge advocate for social justice, you know, fighting for racial equality, you know, having these conversations with my friends, but then internally I'm struggling because I'm still unwilling to accept who I am as a person. And then I'm also then indirectly hurting other people of color because I don't even know if I accept them, but then I'm trying to get my friends to. So it was a very like, it was a very challenging time for me at Dow because I wanted to fit in and I felt like the way to fit in was to be with the white kids. And at the same time, I wanted the white kids to not be racist. And so it was very much challenging, but I would say over the last four years, um, I've really been able to like be introspective and work on that. And I think that pivotal moment was, when my sister and I wrote that blog post because we had to, you know, be like, okay, you know what? Let's lay it all on the line. Let's talk about our experience with internalized racism and let's actually actively work through it. Yeah. And just plugging the article, because I think it was fantastic. I had a read and I could definitely relate to a lot of the themes and the messages. And honestly, it was so open and candid. And I really appreciate that because I think a lot of people hesitate and are reluctant to talk about these things but it's an honest truth that you had with yourself and I think even I've had an extent of it as well and it's good that you're so self-aware and so um, open about it which makes it easier if somebody else is going through something similar to kind of like be able to process their thoughts and go I'm not the only one yeah thank you (laughs) very kind of you no worries the article is called same same but different I'll link it in the show notes below so that people can find it. It's definitely worth a read. Yeah, when we we wrote it, we were, I mean, I've always been very much of an open book. I think that it's really important to, for me at least, to wear my heart on my sleeve. You know, sometimes people might say I'm an oversharer, but I'm very much okay with that. But my sister and I, we got like really great feedback from that. And it's definitely encouraged us to write a part two to see, you know, in the last three years, how our growth has been. So we've chatted about writing one this year and and putting another one out. So if we do that, I will definitely send it your way. Send it my way. And I'm sure that the fam wants to take a read too. So I will share it with them as well. Perfect. First of all, thank you again for being so open about that. And I think it's like really eye-opening to see that even the people who are preaching all this stuff and standing up for what they believe to be the right thing don't always necessarily feel it to be true in themselves and I think that's really important 100% and I think like especially in this time in this climate with the Black Lives Matter movement it's really important to see and and not at all that I'm trying to compare myself to the black community because I'm not my experiences are not at all the same but with them you know I think I've seen a lot of 
my black friends talk about how they can't be walking people through how to navigate this situation. And it is the responsibility of each individual to educate themselves and take action. Um, and I think that what people don't see is that they themselves are doing the work to, you know, make themselves feel safe and confident and comfortable and, you know, educate themselves, help their own community. So I think, you know, putting the pressure on the communities that are being marginalized to educate you and do the work is also extremely exhausting. So that's why I just think it's really important to be able to, from my own experience, share what I'm actually experiencing internally so that people can see how emotionally exhausting it, it is to to do this work. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll also touch on, you know, kind of how to do that work maybe a little bit after, but I have a few more questions. Yeah. You've said a lot of amazing stuff and really eye-opening things <laughs> that I think people will really resonate with. But I just want to go back to kind of staying away from being friends with Indian people and you know, taking on these values. Do you feel like, because I think personally, I feel like there's a spectrum. Like you're either too Indian or you're not Indian enough. And I feel like this happens, especially myself as a RBG, a reluctant brown girl. I feel like people sometimes are like, well, Mm -hmm. they will never say to me, you're too Indian. But I do get the the flip side of that where I'm not Indian enough mm-hmm. and I'm like I don't understand what that means because I am practicing and I believe in and I follow the things that I you know support and that fall in line with what I believe in but I'm not going to practice and do things that I aren't in line with what I I guess want to do if that makes sense yeah a hundred percent Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I think that the issue there is not only do people who are not Indian put us into little boxes, but so does our own culture and our own society put us into these same boxes. Yeah. So I think like it's really hard to please everyone. And um, I think that the difference between us is, you know, when you get that you're you're not Indian enough, you're like, but why? Like I can decide and I can define what Indian enough means to me. Exactly. Whereas now like I know that I'm not Indian enough, but like that's my own feeling. Like I would like to be more Indian. I would like to be taking on more traditions and I would like to tap more into my culture. So that's something that I personally feel for myself, but I would never tell someone else what I think is or is not Indian enough. I think everybody has the right to you know, indulge in their cultures as much as they want to. And that's their prerogative. I don't think it's anybody else's say to say anything like that to anybody. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think it's it's very interesting in your community. It sounded like, you know, you didn't want to be too Indian. And then you're right from our own community, the Indian community. It's, well, you're not Indian enough. Right. And you're right. It is our own prerogative of what we define it to be and what we want it to be. Because at the end of the day, we really are Indian, whether or not we practice what we, yeah. you know, what everybody else does or what we decide what we want to practice. I, I completely agree. What I actually love about Indian culture and also Hinduism, because I am Hindu, what's great about it is that you can kind of pick and choose the areas in which you want to participate. It's, it's not like you have 
a list of things that you have to do. And that's at least how my parents have raised me and how they like to be practicing Hindus is that, you know, it's like, well, there's some things that we really like about the Hindu religion um, and the Hindu way of life that we want to participate in. But there's a lot of things that we don't like and we don't have to, but that's what's so great about it is that you can kind of make your own customized version of what it means to be Indian and what it means to be Hindu. So I think that it's just for immigrants and first gen and and second gen kids, like it's just going to be a challenge that we have is to feel like we don't really fit anywhere. But, you know, as you start to self-reflect, you realize that it genuinely should not matter what other people are saying to you. um, And you should really just decide for yourself what what makes you feel the best. Mm -hmm. And I like the fact that you're saying like, I'm picking and choosing the parts that I like. You're not just blindly following something based on what people believe you should be doing because I don't think that's right either because if it doesn't have any merit to you and you don't believe in it why are you just aimlessly doing something you wouldn't do that normally yeah probably in real life so why would you do that when it comes to cultural things as well absolutely so I want to kind of start to bridge the gap into maybe how all these experiences made you who you are and how that's played into who you've become and coming into your own a little bit more and maybe you know how that's played a part in the projects that you take on or the work Mm -hmm. that you're doing because I'm sure that you know all of these past experiences fuel uh, what we do in the future because if it doesn't bring us joy we're probably not going to continue on that kind of path right I mean sometimes we do but yeah for the most part so something that we both have in common is we have a deep love for building and being involved in the community so and I know you mentioned even in school you were heavily involved and you took on a lot of leadership roles and did you ever feel like you know your background your cultural background or being Indian ever held you back from pursuing your goals or did you feel like it gave you a different perspective on when you were pursuing this or did you feel like you have to I'm giving you a lot, but did you ever feel like you maybe had to present yourself in a certain light in order to get those roles? Right. I think that a lot of my insecurities were very internal and like I I didn't really talk about too much of them out loud. Like uh, unless it was like with close friends or family, I, I wasn't really discussing my like you know, like, oh, are people going to choose me because I'm Indian or are they not going to choose me because I'm Indian? Those were a lot of things that I was just going through internally. Yeah, I never let my identity stop me from running for anything. If anything, it was more of a motivator to participate and get these leadership roles. I think, you know, when I went into university, I was like, all right, something that I've always been angry about is the lack of representation. So I'm going to just take matters into my own hands and be the representation that I've always wanted to see. I definitely think that in terms of the question of, did this give me a different perspective? Absolutely. I think that I definitely observed things in the commerce society and just any, actually any position I've ever had, I've definitely seen that I've observed things that people maybe haven't just because we've come from different lived experiences. So I definitely did see that I was different in any of these communities or groups that I was in. I usually, other than Gurjot, I was usually the only minority or one of the very few. And I was also, and still am very outspoken. So I think I wasn't everybody's favorite person or cup of tea, 
just because I would really say what was on my mind. Um, and I, you know, would call people out for a lot of things. And it put me in a difficult position for sure to constantly be the token person of color talking about the issues and the, the social issues. And, you know, it's like, for example, we're having an event, like, have we thought about how this is going to include international students? Or, you know, is this event maybe a little offensive? And, you know, always being that person that's consistently bringing up these like social issues, it gets exhausting, not only for them, but for me as well. So I think that's, that's kind of been where the challenge was. Did you feel like as a woman of color, you had to bring those issues to the forefront and be considering it because you were the person of minority who was in this leadership role did you yeah. take that on and say like I had to, I have to be the one to spearhead this and do and bring this up because it's almost my role yeah did you feel kind of that way it's kind of sounding like it yeah definitely I think it was like I have to do this one because like I knew that that's where my value stood but also because if I didn't do it nobody else was going to and that's what really made me upset because um, I, I think in, at Dallas especially, I, I was just a very angry person because by this point I had realized just like how much racism I had accepted in my life. And I, I was at a place in my life where I wanted to change that. And at Dow, like I always felt like I was just the only one talking about it, which might or might not have been true, but it, it's how I felt. And it was, it was super frustrating. Because, you know, like as a first year or second year rep, like you want to have fun and you want to make these events, but it's, it's challenging when you're the only one thinking about, you know, how this could affect or hurt other people. It's definitely kind of a double whammy in that I'm also a woman. Yeah. So, you know, I, if anything, I found it a little bit more challenging because of that, because I have been described as feisty, for example. And, you know, when it's really that I'm just passionate and also talking about things that need to be discussed. So my problems were very twofold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And it's so sad that they have different adjectives for us, hey, as women. Yeah, I know. Gotta love them, apparently. It, it's like all of a sudden the thesaurus comes out and yeah. it's not boss, it's bossy or it's all these other things, feisty, sassy. A hundred percent. I'm very grateful for that I attended a commerce program because I I could see the difference between how men and women women would speak in these classes and and how women would be portrayed compared to men but what I also really loved was the way that my male professors would talk and you know how they would talk with such certainty and you know the language that they would use so I started to mimic that and you know because I was like wow I really really respect and value the way that these people are talking and I want to be able to talk like that so I would do that and sometimes it's not that I wouldn't be taken seriously it would just be like that I was too intense that play of feminism def definitely comes in there but yeah I've I've never really changed my like beliefs on that at all. I will continue to speak with, you know, like such not intense, but like passion um, because I think it's really important to, you know, really believe what you're saying. Yeah. No, you shouldn't be anybody else because somebody else wants you to be that. Yeah. You should be you. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. I'm, I like to say unapologetically myself all the time. And if you have a problem with it, that seems to be a you problem, not a me problem. Yeah. I, I very much agree. I think that the thing with Dal was, like I said, I was very 
angry. And so when talking about anything, I would take it as a personal attack and I would get very defensive and I I would be very reactive. And I think like that for sure was not helpful and it wasn't constructive for anyone involved. But by fourth year, definitely changed the way I communicated where it's like, you can still be angry about something, but you know, if you shift the way that you communicate that to someone, they might be more receptive to it. So yeah, I a hundred percent agree that it's like, you're not changing your values and your beliefs or anything like that, but, but maybe just changing the way in which you communicate so that others are more receptive is what I learned. So with that, and I think that's fantastic because I think sometimes people do when they're very passionate about something, it's very easy to get angry. It's very easy to escalate that emotion to anger, from passion to anger, especially when you don't feel like you're being heard. Mm -hmm. So it's nice that you kind of identified that, took a step back and was like, okay, I'm going to approach this differently in a way that people may be able to hear it. And I think that's also part of like gauging your audience and probably, honestly, from a skill development point of view, probably helps you as a brand and marketing person because communication is so important as a part of that role. Yeah. So if you can change your messaging and the way that you're approaching that messaging, it would really actually, like you said, help people become more receptive. So do you feel like when you kind of almost changed your tune in the way you approached those conversations, did you feel like it made more of an impact on your community and the people you were speaking to? Yeah. So at Dow, I lived with, or in my final year, I lived with four guys and two other girls. So we were a house of seven and I was the only person of color. I could see that, you know, whenever I was coming into these conversations with like anger, which was a hundred percent valid, but like when I was coming into these conversations from a place of anger and I was just like yelling at them being like, you guys are so privileged. You don't understand anything. Like this is what you're doing wrong. This is what you're doing wrong. Like this is what matters. It would be so overwhelming for them that they would just either shut down or get defensive or be like, why have a conversation with you when it's not going to get anywhere. And while I totally think that the onus should be on, you know, all parties involved to, you know, learn how to be more receptive and to communicate properly and to empathize with the other person, I definitely don't think I did the best job of handling adversity and handling these conversations. I think that it made it really hard for them to ever want to talk about politics or social justice issues around me when Mm -hmm. you just feel like you're about to be attacked. And I'm not saying that like either side is right or wrong, but I think that even I, you know, I can understand like if someone's coming to me and they're really angry because, you know, I've done something or whatever, I can understand that because I've experienced it myself. But for someone who's white and, you know, a cisgender straight male, like they're not going to understand. And so I've just take I've learned to take more of an empathetic role in those kind of situations and and people can agree with that they can disagree with that you know everybody has to do what's best for themselves but I was like all right well, well I'm living with them for for a year um and I want to eventually try to get to a place where we can have these conversations so I actually before this podcast talked to one of my old roommates Aiden and we were talking about how it was a little challenging to have conversations with me and I had let him know you know like it was challenging to have conversations with you as well, because for them, they saw our conversations about race and gender as more of an academic debate. Whereas for me, it was personal lived experiences and trauma. So 100% when I'm coming into these conversations, there's going to be emotion involved in them, because I'm speaking from a place of where I've actually experienced racism, and I've actually experienced misogyny and, you know, sexism. So 
I think as long as they're aware of the fact that they're coming in from a huge, huge place of privilege and they're able to have this as just an academic conversation, I think that's a really good starting point. That was a very long ramble, but essentially that's what I took away from my fourth year. (laughs) I think that's fantastic. And I think I just want to clarify when you said that he can't understand, it's not that he he can't comprehend, he can imagine, but because he's never experienced it himself, he's always going to be coming from a position of like, hypothetically speaking, or I I think this is maybe how you are feeling, but never actually truly figuring out or knowing it from himself. And you're right, it takes the emotion completely out of it. And where you're coming from is a place of emotion because, you know, it's you're heavily tied and you've fully experienced it and been immersed in this. Right. So how could you not speak with emotion and logic mixed in? Right. Unfortunately, I find that mostly when you're having these conversations, you have to try to take the emotion out of it. And mm-hmm. if you're going to have emotion in these conversations, it has to be leaning toward like there almost has to be no anger and it has to be almost not sympathy per se, but more of like an empathetic standpoint where that you can allow someone to empathize for your situation. Because mm-hmm. you're right, if you do come from a place of anger, then they feel more attacked and they're probably going to shut down and that means they're not going to listen anymore. Exactly. And I think that the challenge there is that a lot of people from marginalized communities are then like, well, that's more work on us. And I completely agree. It is It is more work on us. But I think at some point you have to figure out whether or not that work for you specifically is worth it. And for me, I found that I was getting more exhausted and making no change with this anger strategy of mine. And so I was like, you know what, I might as well try the other way. And I might as well see what it does. And it did work better. Do we have conversations about this all the time? No. But that's also because I've learned that I have my limits. And I'm only going to take on conversations that I'm, I feel like are going to be healthy for both parties. But yeah, I've definitely seen a shift in all my friends. And I don't think it's just because of me per se, but I've definitely seen a shift in them in that they're more willing to have conversations with me when I'm not coming from a place of attack. And when I feel like I'm not getting any kind of receptiveness from them, it's easier for me to vocalize that and be like, hey, you know what? I would really appreciate if you would understand that you're coming from a place of privilege right now and that this is your opportunity to learn and you know hear the experiences of a person of color. So I think that that that's a really key takeaway. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also want to just caveat this with sometimes you're not going to be able to have those conversations if the person has a very fixed mindset. If they're open, it's a lot easier and you'll still run into these hurdles. But I think when it's a fixed mindset, you're just kind of banging your head against a wall and it's almost, it's not your fault. Even if you try to be as rational and logical and calm as possible, sometimes people still won't hear you. But at yeah. least you're trying your best to explain it. A hundred percent. And I think like when I was at Dow, like my first and second year, my goal was to try to change every single person I possibly could. And mm. by the end of it, I was like, well, first of all, I'm burnt out. And second of all, I think it's more impactful to really, you know, just open the mind of other people as well as yourself of a few really great people than it is to do like superficial changes like at a larger scale. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I I totally agree with that. I think that's fantastic. And I think people forget about that because they want, it's all or nothing. A lot of the mentality is all or nothing, which is 
not how it should be because you know those few people that maybe you felt like okay I just influenced a few people but you don't know maybe those people that you influenced are now influencing other people and it's a trickle down effect exactly so maybe you're actually making a larger impact than you realize which is fantastic but you just can't see it so yeah because of that it's like harder to quantify and like justify like okay I need I need to do more but I think even just a few people uh, can make a huge impact as well totally I agree (laughs) so I guess kind of like bringing it more to a close our conversation I wanted to leave the fam with a little bit of you know insights and kind of words of wisdom on how they how you've gone about things so they can think about that and take that in and maybe do the same things for themselves Mm -hmm. and specifically around maybe working on unlearning internalized racism so was there any tools that you had or things that you did or was it just more so you just sat down and reflected and how did that exercise kind of look I think that you know I was very lucky in that I have a sister that's only two years older than me so you know, we were really able to talk about it with each other. Be like, hey, do you feel this way? Because I feel this way. And I don't know if this is right or wrong. And and that really was when the unlearning started. I think that like, if you have the opportunity to talk to anyone, to definitely do that. And ideally, like it would be someone who maybe has experienced that as well. And if you don't have that person, reach out to me. I'm happy to have these conversations. Yeah. And you can reach out to me too. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say something like that. I think that also trying to actively find people that are in the spotlight that have had similar experiences or who have written about it, or even this podcast, for example. I mean, I think if I had this several years ago, it would have been really nice because I could have seen that there were other people that felt the same way. So I think one thing about unlearning is finding that you're not alone and and you will find a community eventually that does feel very similar to you. The second thing was writing, actually putting my thoughts onto paper or onto a Google Doc. Just writing out how I felt made me realize how embedded my internalized racism was within me and how it really has affected so many aspects of my life. And even, you know, four years after writing that blog post, you know, I'm still unlearning things and how I handle those things now is once again talking about it. So I not only now talk about it with my sister and other friends of color of mine, but I also bring it up to my white friends. I'm like, hey, I'm I'm experiencing this right now. It makes me feel kind of weird and sad. And I know that you might not understand this at all, but I want to just talk about it. So my support system definitely is has been my top uh, asset when it comes to unlearning internalized racism. The the second thing would be writing things out. The third is, yeah, like definitely taking the time to reflect. I'm a very introspective person, maybe a little too much, some would say, but I would say, you know, taking that time to actively reflect and ask yourself, why are these the things that I do? Or why don't I do these certain things? You then just start asking yourself these questions and you start realizing that you can find the root of these challenges within you. So I think that's really important. And then the final thing, I mean, if you have the privilege and the access to, I think therapy is really important. And it was really helpful for me, not just with internalized racism, but with anxiety and and a lot of other things. I found that to be really helpful. And, And my therapist is white, but I still found it really great to just kind of let it out and talk about it. It's essentially talking about it and writing it out. I think the first step is 
admitting that there is some internalized racism within you and, you know, accepting that and then deciding to actively work through it to unlearn it is, is really important. But you also have to trust that this is a long-term game plan. This is not going to change overnight. You're going to see it creeping back up and your responsibility then is to get better at bouncing back from it get better at handling these internalized racism because it's totally valid that you're feeling these things, but now it's about how do you handle it now that you're actively aware that it is internalized racism. Yeah, so I'm feeling the shame, but what am I going to do to first identify where the shame is coming from? And now what next steps am I going to take to help that kind of go away or, you know, turn that shame into more of something that I'm proud of? Yeah. So basically what I said in three minutes, you were able to sum up in a, in like a quick sentence, but that, that, no, that was so much better than the way that I said it. No, I think yours is fantastic. (laughs) You had a lot more feeling and emotion backed with it. No, but it, but that's essentially it. Like, yeah, you, you validate your feeling. You're like, okay, yeah, this is the discomfort that I'm feeling. And then it's about now taking that next step to actively work on it. Mm -hmm. And that's something I actually constantly do, not just when it comes to being Indian or cultural stuff, but just in my life in general, even when it comes to career and um, development and personal learning, it's always good to kind of identify those areas in our life that we can improve on and then go take those steps forward. So yeah, yeah, definitely can very, very much appreciate that. And I think that really comes along with building self-esteem and self-awareness, which is very important and honestly helps us get those feelings of being more secure, not just in ourselves, but in our community. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think like, like you said, the first step, you know, while it is admitting it, but you know, you start to feel better when you actually start to take action and you start actually working towards bettering yourself and in general, just bettering the people around you in your community by, by empowering yourself and, and not feeling ashamed. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. So I guess Is there also anything you'd want to maybe tell yourself if you could go back to your younger self, let's say that you'd want to like some advice you'd want to give your younger self? Because I know there probably is a lot of younger girls or um, younger people listening as well that may be experiencing something like this and Mm -hmm. haven't gone through and had that epiphany yet or that realization that, hey, this is something that's embedded and I'm I want to fix this or I'm not okay with this. Yeah. Is there anything that you can give them? Yeah. Or advice that you'd want to give them? Absolutely. I think that, you know, growing up, I guess this is quite typical of, or it's it's not the best thing about Indian families, but it's that they sometimes have a hard time validating your feelings. So I think, you know, if I were to picture my younger self, something that I'd want to let her know is that her feelings and everything she's feeling is 100% valid and that it's okay to be angry. It's it sucks that she feels ashamed, but those things are okay and and that it will all be okay. So I think, you know, if you're currently experiencing just, you know, feeling that insecurity or feeling ashamed in yourself or you're just angry at the world, I think, you know, it's okay. Sit in that feeling for a little bit, you know, validate it and let yourself know like it's okay. That's definitely something that I wish I had a little bit more of growing up. My second piece of advice would be to take a deep breath for sure. As someone who used to be extremely reactive up until like a year ago. (laughs) Honestly, I would never know that. Oh, perfect. I've uh, very much worked on myself this last year and COVID has definitely forced myself to look in the mirror and be like, all right, let's, let's take a step back and take a deep breath. So yeah, yeah, I would say take a deep breath and you 
it's okay that you're angry, but you know, let's just try to stay calm. It, it'll just be better for your mental health anyway. So that would be my second piece of advice. And my third one is more of, I mean, it's not totally related to internalized racism, but it's something that actually a friend of mine used to say to me, and it's that nobody cares about you as much as you think they do. And I know that that might sound harsh, but it's honestly something that I genuinely live by now. And it's really improved my confidence because anytime I used to feel insecure, whether that had to do with being brown, being a woman, or just both, I'd always be like, oh my gosh, but there's like this added level of pressure because like people are looking at me. But now that I live by this, nobody cares um, as much as you think they do. I've learned that I genuinely started just doing things for myself because it's what's genuinely made me happy. Um, So if that means, you know, using my social media platform to advocate for social justice, I don't care anymore if there's a bunch of people that are like, oh my God, she's so annoying. I'm going to unfollow her. And, and let them, if you don't want those people in your life anyways, that don't support what you're doing or what you believe in. I completely agree. I think like you just have to genuinely do you. I guess that's a better way of saying it. But I I kind of like the whole nobody cares about you as much as you think they do because it also humbles you a little bit. And I like you're, it's okay. Like don't think that, you know, everybody is putting you under a microscope because they're not. You, You have to do what's best for yourself and you have to do the things that make you happy. Agreed. Yeah. And honestly, I think a lot of the times people take other people's perceptions or what they believe to be other people's perceptions and really take that on as their own yeah. identity or feeling or defining of who they are, which you're right. Nobody cares that much about you. So nobody cares. That's the best advice I've ever gotten. Nobody cares about you at all. Like, I, I mean, they care obviously. And like, obviously your family and your friends care, but like in the grand scheme of things, like on my Instagram, nobody actually cares as much as you think. Like you're posting yeah. a picture you've put in so much effort, which is absolutely amazing if that makes you happy, but like, don't be sad or, and don't be too happy. If like, if you get like a hundred thousand likes or if you get like one, it, it doesn't matter. You yeah. should be doing things because it's what's right for you and, and not for validation from anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. We're in a, unfortunately we're in a society, especially with social media and everything where we're, I think a lot of people are constantly seeking that validation from others, but yeah. And I think it's harder as you're as you're younger and like knowing that there's a separation of like, okay, this is a platform and this doesn't define what I place value on. And like, it's not based on other people's, the likes or the comments that I'm getting, but it's actually who I am. But I think that's harder to see when you're younger and you're growing yeah. up in this culture. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like, don't get me wrong. I still sometimes, you know, will be like, oh, I just posted a picture. Like, are people going to like it? Yeah. But I've also kind of shifted what social media means for me. I I now see it more as like a professional tool. So like Instagram, for example, is my version of LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Like it's where I can show like what I'm interested in about, what my values are. And um, it's more of like a holistic look at to, into who I am. I think that, you know, you have to figure out your own boundaries with social media and you just have to remember, like, you really have to do things that are best for you. And there, there's nothing wrong with that either. And that's, that's really when I think you start to feel most comfortable and confident within yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe some few last parting words. I have a final sure. question for you yeah. is, kind of what are you hoping to leave behind and what do you want 
the main takeaway from today's conversation to be? Oh my goodness, the hardest question. (laughs) What I'd like for people to take from this conversation is that we are all works in progress Mm -hmm. and that our change does not happen overnight and that that's okay. I think that also what's so great about this podcast is that being a reluctant brown girl is different for every single person. Mm-hmm. When I was listening to your podcast with your cousin and and with your first one where you were discuss- chatting with a few different people, everybody had a, a different idea of what being a reluctant brown girl meant. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but for you, for example, it was more about, you know, you deciding what you wanted to choose about being Indian fit and molded best in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, it's genuinely being reluctant to be a brown girl. Mm -hmm. Like I'm very hesitant to accept that part of my life. I mean, and so I think what I want people to take away from this is, yeah, that it's a work in progress. You are not expected to know everything or, you know, be everything you want to be right now. I think that for me, I've, I would say this is probably one of the first times in my life that I'm very proud to be Indian and I'm very proud to be a, a brown girl. And um, while there is still some reluctancy sometimes, it's been the first time where I've, I've genuinely been like, I'm Indian and I'm proud. So I think that, you know, it's going to come in waves and that's okay. I think you just kind of have to flow with it. But what's really important is that you keep these thoughts and you keep these conversations top of mind. And you don't try to suppress these when it gets difficult. It's really important to have these challenging conversations. I might seem like it's very easy for me, but that's because I've been doing this for about the majority of my life. I would say like the more you do it, the more comfortable it becomes. And honestly, you get, you build such great relationships out of it as well. So keep having these uncomfortable conversations with yourself and with others, because I promise it genuinely does get better. It's a work in progress and you do you. I think that's great. Oh, thank you. So before we wrap it up, could you please tell the fam where they can find you and your amazingness? So you can find me on Instagram is primarily where I'm at. My handle is at Ragini Rajpal with an underscore at the end. Um, I essentially use my Instagram as my LinkedIn, like I mentioned. So if you're like looking to connect for any kind of reason, Instagram is the place to be. I have a website. It's my first and last name.com. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. But like I said, Instagram's, Instagram's the best place for me. Awesome. So thank yeah. you so much, Ragini, for coming on the show. It was so nice chatting with you. And thank you for having me. No problem. And it was I really appreciate how vulnerable and candid and open you were throughout this conversation. And I think everybody will really appreciate that as well. Thank you so much. It was honestly great. Like, I think that this is so amazing. And like I said, I wish I had something like this when I was growing up. So I think that this is honestly amazing that, um, you know, future generations, current generations, just everybody's going to be able to tap into the mind of so many reluctant brown girls. Thank you so much, Ragini. I'm Manisha. This is the life of a reluctant brown girl. Thanks for hanging out. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and don't forget to share with your friends. Have something or someone you want to hear on the podcast? Let us know. Leave a comment or connect with us on Instagram. See you next time.